five weeks paid vacation and let them tell us what tools they need. Have you heard about Europe? (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we have an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we are talking with Genevieve Gaudet, a program manager from Nava. Welcome, Genevieve. Hi, thank you for having me. You have made it back from London. How was that? I really enjoyed it. I got to meet so many designers from all over the world. I was really surprised at how many people are doing really, really similar work to the work we're doing here in the U.S. So it was really inspiring and motivating for me. Awesome. So Genevieve, how did you get started in the public sector? Through sheer force of will, I guess, (laughs) very early on thought that I wanted to be a doctor. And so when I was in university, began volunteering as an EMT and getting very interested in the public health situation in the city that I grew up in, New Orleans. And once I was done with university, realized that The medical route wasn't really for me, but that public health very well could be. And in the course of those studies, began to learn more about the role of design and technology. And I began to learn more about the role of design and technology, and specifically how much impact the government in particular can have on people's health and well-being in a way that almost no other kind of institution really can. I read from your websites and blog that your background is in civic service design, which I thought was a really interesting way to frame service design. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So the way I think about civic service design is the application of service design to government services and to the public sector. I have been really fortunate in my work in the New York City Mayor's Office. I was able to co-found a service design studio with two really amazing women, Ariel Cannon and Chisun Reese. And together, the practice we built, which we began to call civic service design, was design-led product and service teams that could work on programs that really benefited vulnerable New Yorkers. And so now in my work, the way I think about civic service design is how do we continue to improve public services? And I think the lens of service design gives us a lot of permission to bring in policy and legislators and residents, everyone who has a stake and I think should have a say in the way that these services are shaped. Wow, that sounds really one team govy technical term the idea about bringing together lots of different people from different disciplines. That's awesome that you did that so early on in New York. Is there any service that you built that you were particularly proud of from those days? I'm really proud of all of the work we did. As far as I know, that studio was the first practice of its kind built inside of an American government. So I'm really enormously grateful to have had that opportunity. The first big project that we took on was called Homestat, 
and that was applying service design to this very long-standing and ongoing work to get houseless New Yorkers into permanent homes. And this project really centered the experience of street homeless New Yorkers. So these are folks who live on the sidewalks or in the subway and in many cases have been homeless for a very long time. And that project, one of the reasons I think it was successful and one of the reasons I'm so proud of it is that we were able to be really deeply collaborative with folks whose careers have been totally dedicated to this one problem. And what we really brought to that project was the tools that design gives us. With them, we were able to map the process from someone first being recognized as being in this situation all the way through to getting into permanent housing. And we're able to take that to people who are really high up in the city, deputy mayors and folks like that, and say, this process is hundreds and hundreds of steps long, and we're asking some of our most vulnerable residents to go through it. And adding those tools, we were able to help people who've been advocating for a really long time see some of the changes that they were hoping to make. That's really, really inspiring. When you say that you brought the tools, what sort of approaches did you take to that area? And how do you think it looked differently from the way that people had approached those problems before? When we think about applying design tools to these sorts of problems, it sounds really simple. When I say what we did, we interviewed public servants all along the delivery path of helping houseless New Yorkers. In the case of New York, there are teams of folks who will go into the subway trains and around the city to offer help to people who appear to be in that situation. So we shadowed them and interviewed them. And then we continued that all the way up through the government agencies and nonprofits that were involved. So we really tried to get a really comprehensive picture of what the folks who deliver that service go through, what their priorities, how they worked, things like that. And we paired that, of course, with stories from New Yorkers who had found themselves in that situation and had either tried to get help and succeeded or in some cases hadn't gotten the help that they needed. It was very different simply because we were able to represent so many different perspectives. I know that these issues are not new, and there are folks who have dedicated entire careers to trying to fix them. The one thing that we did a little different, which added to all of that work, was doing these interviews, representing really complicated processes in a clearer way through journey mapping and service mapping, and coaching those civil servants on how to actually use the evidence that we were building to advocate for changes that they wanted to see. Wow, that's incredible. We've started to get into a little bit more about what NAVA does. Can you tell us where it came from as an organization and what the mission is? I joined NAVA in early 2017. The organization started in 2013. So NAVA is a public benefit corporation, and we work to radically improve how the government serves people. Originally, it was formed as a team of designers and engineers who joined the effort to fix healthcare.gov in 2013, which in the U.S. had this very public failed launch when the website went up and Americans were supposed to be able to use it to sign up for health insurance, but the website itself failed. Our team was sort of born out of that, and now we partner with state and federal agencies like those that administer Medicare and Medicaid, which are public health insurance in the U.S. And we also work with the Department of Veterans Affairs to modernize their digital services. 
one of the coolest things I think about NAVA is that because we work on these really big federal programs and the U.S. is a really big country, the work we do actually ends up touching more than 60 million people who access these critical programs. That's incredible. 60 million is the population of England, so you're basically serving an entire country. It's a lot. There are some incredibly talented people who work here, and I have such a deep respect for what they do. I feel really, really lucky to get to work with the team here. You mentioned that NAVA describes itself as a public benefit corporation. How does that work with government in terms of funding and management? A public benefit corporation is just a legal structure in the way you can have an LLC or anything like that. And a public benefit corporation in particular means that our incentives as a company are not just tied to profit, but actually tied to public benefit. In the case of NAVA, We have a model where all of our employees are the shareholders, and that means that if the company were to do something that wasn't in the public benefit, we could actually pursue legal action. So it's this very clear legal way of ensuring that as an organization, all of the work we do serves people who live here in the U.S. You mentioned healthcare.gov. We've previously interviewed Lena Trudeau, who used to work um, in the US and now works in Canada, and she talked about some of the context of that. What was NAVA's role or roles within the recovery of such a big website failure? So all six of our co-founders worked on healthcare.gov in 2013. They were mostly engineers, though some designers and product folks, and they were brought in first to just get the website back up. Our team specifically was working on first the identity management system, which I know sounds really boring, (laughs) but one of the big reasons that healthcare.gov in the beginning wasn't working for people is that if you can imagine, if you need health insurance, one of the things you need to do is create an account. So there has to be some system for managing all of those. And it turned out that the system that healthcare.gov originally used couldn't handle all the traffic that it was getting. So one of the first things our team was asked to do was build what we call SLS, the scalable login service, which sort of dropped in in the middle. It was one of the first pieces of infrastructure that could help handle all the traffic and keep the site up for folks. Since then, our team was a really core part of designing and building the actual application itself, which handled a lot of traffic in the early days of our work on healthcare.gov. And moving forward from there, our team has worked on integrating more and more of the actual people-facing part of the application so that they can cover all of the use cases for people who apply for health insurance, which it turns out are very varied and can be quite complicated. Any of us who work in public service tech can empathize, especially around the sign-in and login. Personally speaking, I have, wherever possible, avoided adding any sort of sign-in element to any application I've built because it does make things so tricky. Yeah, It's incredible that the team were able to recover that. And I think that built a lot of momentum with the service and bringing things back up to speed. So that's great. In some of our research before we chatted to you, we were reading about some of the work that NAVA has been doing with Medicare and Medicaid. Can you tell us a bit more about that? In my own work at NAVA, I've been super lucky to help form and lead a partnership with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the federal agency that manages those programs, and Code for America, which is a nonprofit dedicated, similarly to NAVA, helping governments improve their digital services. And altogether, 
we formed what's called the Integrated Benefits Partnership, which is looking for opportunities to improve the ecosystem of social services in the U.S. And the big focus is making programs like Medicaid, so health insurance, and SNAP, which is a food assistance program in the U.S., easier for people to apply for and maintain. My work over the last year has been going to many, many different states in the U.S. and doing field research with delivery teams in the states and interviewing clients to find opportunities for us to prototype new ways of delivering those services and trying to find opportunities to develop open source technology so that states can share them and really dramatically reduce the cost of building this technology and maintaining it while also strengthening the actual quality of those services as they're delivered to clients. Can you tell us a story about one of the states that you went to, maybe one that was particularly interesting? Pretty early on in this work, we had an interview that I think for me really drove home how critical it is to really think about making our eligibility services, as I think of them, really easy to use. And what I mean by that is if you find that you need help getting medical care or paying for food or or getting into housing or any of these programs that sort of fall under the umbrella of social services, then actually applying for them needs to be just a total non-event. And instead, we find that it can be really scary for people and really daunting. So I was in Dearborn, Michigan, and Dearborn, you may know, has one of the highest populations of Arabic-speaking Americans, and many folks who live there are very recent immigrants. And in my work, both at NAVA and in the mayor's office, I found what interview folks in that situation who had recently immigrated to the U.S., there was often a lot of fear and really deep mistrust of government services, particularly social services. And I was interviewing a woman who was describing to me this really long journey she'd gone through to get here, and we began to talk about her application process to get Medicaid. So, you know, help going to the doctor. And she had so much mistrust based on things she'd heard of her little bit of experience applying for it, that she said something to me like, I waited until my teeth hurt so badly that I couldn't eat until I applied for Medicaid. It was heartbreaking to me that these services are so hard. There's so many barriers in front of them that people suffer rather than go through the application process. For a different project in the city of New York, I led the redesign of a website called Access NYC, which is a resource connecting New Yorkers to city services. And we designed it to work in 11 different languages. And one of the reasons we did that was because of stories like this. I interviewed a woman once in Brooklyn who had, again, recently immigrated from Central America And she told me that she was so scared of applying for food assistance that she'd started only eating once a day. Rather than just go to an office and fill out the form, she was so sure that this wasn't for her. When in fact, because of her situation, she could have applied, but that information wasn't there. There was no clear place for her to go to understand what was available to her and how to get it. And that's a much bigger problem than tech, but it is one that can begin to be solved if we apply service design thinking to the ways that we share information about these programs, the ways that we make it clear up front how it actually works and how you can apply. Because in all of those situations, even in situations that 
aren't as urgent, you know, even when it's not a crisis of that nature, it should be just a non-event. You know, you should just be able to sign up and then you can go to the doctor, which was your real goal in the first place. Or you can buy food for your family, which was your real goal in the first place. No one's goal is ever to fill out an application and then submit it. Absolutely. What we see across government, when you expose public servants who haven't necessarily been close to the user previously to those kinds of scenarios where they're having that contact with people in situations like you described, it's so impactful. You've talked about things like human-centered safety nets. Can you say a bit more about that? To me, human-centered safety net means that the ways that we have to help people who are struggling to meet a basic need, like buying food or getting to the doctor or finding housing. To be human-centered in that situation means that they can access programs that can help them with that from where they are. So for instance, many programs in the U.S. in particular, the applications don't work on phones, which many, many people rely on for access to the internet. That's just one example of how it could be more people-centered. We see these small barriers put in front of programs across the board. But I do think it's also important to point out that in the work that I do, in the work we do at NAVA, we also think of human-centered as also working for the public servants who have to maintain these things, you know, in Homestat and Access NIC and in the Integrated Benefits Initiative, really every project I've ever done in government. I've found public servants making the best of what they have and often really struggling to make technology work for them, trying to do the best they can with what they've been given, which is often not quite the right tool for the job. All had those situations where you go and you see how technology is working with public servants often on the front line. You just see spreadsheets and really old browsers and desktops. And these people are just trying to do the absolute best that they can with a totally underfunded infrastructure. Yes, I often joke that the best thing we could do for public servants, I think, is give them five weeks paid vacation and let them tell us what tools they need. Have you heard about Europe? (laughs) (laughs) If I could give that to all the caseworkers in the US, send them all to Europe for five weeks vacation, I think that would really help things. That'd be a winning policy. Maybe you should run in 2020. (laughs) One of the things I find most interesting about people working in digital and public sector in the US is that you have multiple levels of government that you can essentially experiment on. And it sounds like you've been exposed to all of them. So obviously the city level in New York and the state level with the work you're doing with NAVA and the federal level in Washington. So I was just wondering, are there any majorly stark differences you see at those different levels? The biggest difference I see is in the funding. Working in the city of New York, it's its own challenge a city like 8 million people. That's a really big city. You know, there's a lot of funding relative to other places. But I think when you get to the municipal level in more normal sized cities or the average city in the US, there often isn't the money you would need and the political capital you would need to do something like launch a digital services team. That's not to say it doesn't exist. Boston in the US has done some really amazing things. New York City, obviously. But I think it's really hard at the city level to change the civil service norms such that suddenly you're hiring designers and developers who work in an agile way and things like that. I think it's a little bit different at the state level. California has a digital service now. 
I think the state of Georgia might also in the U.S. So we're sort of starting to see at the state level the kind of change that was put into place at the federal level by USDS and 18F. But again, there's sort of just a little less funding, a little bit harder to push those changes through as you get more and more local. Yeah, selling public services is quite hard politically at the moment, just to state the obvious. Yeah. (laughs) How do you go about selling this approach to people who are senior who may not necessarily have the best views of public service? In my experience, there are two major arguments you can make depending on your audience. One of them, which I think is a little more palatable to folks who have a more conservative view of what government should be up to, is cost. So framing everything in terms of actual cost of service delivery. The U.S. spends something like billions of dollars maintaining technical infrastructure just in eligibility services alone. It's wild how much money we spend to have every state and territory build their own Medicaid eligibility system and then update it, keep it running. And my view and the view we take at NAVA and the Integrated Benefits Initiative is that that's totally unnecessary. Open source technology has made it so that we can have really high quality services and we don't need to be reinventing how this should work 54 different times. If states were sharing these things where it was appropriate, we could really drive down costs and we could also share what it takes to maintain these tools. That's one argument you can make is that it's much, much cheaper in the long run to really design and build these things very well and then share them across the states. The other argument you can make if your audience is more on the progressive side of what government should be up to is that this way of working really centers the people who need to use these services and who are going to maintain these services. It just works better. It's more dignified and humane and kind. And somewhere in there, usually if you try out both, you'll find one that sticks Totally agree with that. We were quite lucky in that GDS came about when we had a coalition government. So one was slightly more left wing and the conservatives were in power. So we had both those arguments running at the same time. They're both really, really effective depending on your audience. Is there anything that really frustrates you or drives you nuts about working in government? Everyone in the field knows bureaucracy is hard. (laughs) There's a lot that we have to deal with that maybe doesn't exist as much in the private sector or not in the same way. Not so much a frustration, but a challenge that I see for us in civic technology is that in the U.S. anyway, we're sort of moving into this new phase of civic tech, building on what GDS did, USDS and 18 and F have proven out. We've picked up all this momentum inside and outside of government to the point where you see organizations like NAVA doing really well, Code for America. The platform is getting bigger and bigger and the community across the world is becoming more connected. And so I think in this new phase, we really need to be pushing the community to accept accountability for outcomes and not just a scope of work or a contract that we've gotten. And I will say this is really informed by my perspective in the U.S. where service design is a relatively new discipline. And so I think the challenge is really to embed service design and that level of intentionality into the work we're doing so that we can say, we're going to hold ourselves accountable for this program actually reaching the outcomes. And we're going to hold the same level of accountability that the government would in delivering this service and making sure that it actually works for people over the really long term. 
I don't always see that in civic tech. And I think that if we really want to realize the big lofty goals we have around consistent, high quality, people-centered services, then we need to accept more accountability for realizing those things. You talked about the growing international community around these things. Obviously, you went to the GDS International Design Conference. How was that? I did. It was amazing. I really loved it. I had the incredible opportunity to run a workshop with two of my colleagues, Sneha Pai and Zina Ni, who are both designers at Nava. And the workshop was looking at whether service patterns might be a useful tool to share best practices and tips and things within the service design community. And we were doing this in the context of social services, which is the huge focus for all of us at Nava. And going into this workshop, what we wanted to do was introduce the idea of service patterns, which don't really exist. We have UI patterns, things like that. But we wanted to see if we could sort of interrogate this idea of what a tool like that could look like and using social services as the context prototype some ideas of what a service pattern could include and see if there are any really ripe areas of social services to dig and try to create like a first pattern or something. And so going into this, we thought, okay, you know, we work on these really big, complicated programs in the U.S., we're probably doing it entirely the wrong way and we're just going to get totally schooled by all these other countries who you know, have totally figured this out and have way better services than we do. So it'll be a really good learning opportunity for us. We'll learn all about these new kinds of ways of doing things. And 12 or 15 people came to the workshop and we asked them to map out either a service they were familiar with or if they weren't to kind of follow along and as uh, expert designers begin listing, you know, questions they have, assumptions they have about user needs, you know, anything we could use to understand the mindset of a designer looking at something like this and maybe working on it for themselves. And what we found was that basically every eligibility service that people mapped out from Ireland and the UK and Scotland, it was an eerily similar process to <laughs> what we do in the US. Basically, everyone asks people to fill out pretty redundant forms and submit documents that have the same information that the forms already had. And then we go check our database to make sure that information is there a third time. And everyone has the same frustrations and I couldn't believe that we were all in the same boat and it was an incredible moment of community for me as we dug into, well, why is it this way? And what do we do now that we've recognized that this is actually a global problem? How do we push this truly like global conversation now forward into figuring out what the solution could look like? Because now we recognize that we've all got this pattern that doesn't quite work for our users. We see some of those commonalities nearly every day in the work that we do, and especially those of us who've been fortunate enough to work across a number of organizations. Can you give a shout out to a country or a person you met and one interesting thing you learned about them? I really loved sitting down with the folks who came from Ireland to learn about their pension program. They mapped it out for us, and it was basically just like signing up for Medicare and Social Security in the U.S. So shout out to Donald from Ireland, who told me all about that. Sitting with them and having them explain this process that was a slightly different context and that they were in a different country, but being able to ask questions like, 
oh, well, what if there's a discrepancy between these two forms and having them both laugh so knowingly because it's a problem we all have and saying like, yeah, you know, that's kind of the worst thing that can happen here. It was just so reassuring to see my experience and service that I spend so much time working on and thinking about and just having that level of empathy and community with other people was just never had that before. Oh, that sounds really good. It's so good to hear that that can happen at an international scale as well. I think we've all had sort of microcosms where that works if we get together in London, that that can work cross country is awesome. You have obviously lived and worked in New York, which is the greatest city in the world, according to the musical Hamilton. (laughs) If you were going to recommend one thing for someone to do in New York that's not in your standard guidebook, what would you recommend and why? When I first moved to New York, I was an intern with no money, so I couldn't afford to do the touristy things. But my favorite thing to do when friends would come into town is I would take them on the M train over the Williamsburg Bridge. And from there, you can see just like the most beautiful view of the city. So I would say either take the M train or walk over the Williamsburg Bridge at sunset and take in the gorgeous view of that incredible city from the top of the bridge. In my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful views in all of New York City and you can get it for two seventy five a subway ride. <laughs> Beautiful and cheap. I love it. On Twitter, you say mostly feminist retweets <laughs> as part of your biography. <laughs> Who are the main feminists that you admire? Oh gosh, what an incredible question. I really recommend following Sabrina Hersey Issa. She's a human rights technologist. She's also written about civic technology, but her focus has really been on how technology particularly can be toxic for people of color, women, and why it's so urgent that we all take accountability for changing these patterns. I've learned a lot by reading and listening to her. Her Twitter is at beingbrina, and I totally recommend that everyone follow her. We definitely will. You've helpfully taken us into our final section, which is recommending some things for us to look at. So let's take that as your Twitter account that you recommend. Can you tell us about a podcast that you've listened to other than this one, of course? Of course. So first of all, this one. (laughs) And second, I really recommend the podcast Code Switch. This is all about the experiences of people of color, mostly in the U.S., and they just tell really incredible stories that I think don't get a chance to be told often enough in the media. I think it's particularly important for people who work on the kinds of things we do to be able to empathize and carry those stories with us when we're thinking about who we want to learn from to improve our services, who we're hiring, how we talk about this stuff. It's been really educational for me, and I highly recommend it. Wicked. Okay. And a book? I thought a lot about this one. And I recommend that people read Ada Limon's latest book of poems. It's called Bright Dead Things. And there is a poem very early in the book called How to Triumph Like a Girl. And it chokes me up every time I read it. It makes me feel super powerful and ready to do anything. (laughs) So that's the book I recommend. I'm already Googling it. How to Triumph Like a Girl. Excellent. Read it to yourself in the morning. (laughs) It's really good. And finally, a charity or social enterprise. I recommend that folks check out The Human Utility. They help families in Detroit and Baltimore exercise their right to clean water by directly paying water bills and advocating for water rights. They're an incredible organization. As a bonus Twitter follow, I recommend you follow their founder, 
at Tiffany with an I. Brilliant. Thank you. We'll check it out. Just as we've been talking, one final tidbit from us is that Kamala and I have just realized the bridge that you mentioned in New York. She and I walked across a couple of years ago when we were at a conference called Lesbian to Tech, which was the most fun we've ever had ever. <laughs> and on the weekend, we walked across that bridge to go to Brooklyn and hang out with the hipsters. So yes, good memories. Yeah, we went to Brooklyn Brewery, one of the best breweries. It was awesome. Nice. It's an incredible view, isn't it? Yeah, it was so good. We just kind of wandered across that way because we were staying in Chinatown, but halfway across realized how nice it was. So yeah, definitely agree with that tip. The best way to check out New York, walk across the bridge. Genevieve, thank you so much for chatting with us. We've heard some really fascinating things and we'd love to have you on the podcast again sometime in the future. Thank you. I'd love to come back. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. awesome interview what did you think Kamala yeah that was so awesome I loved how she talked about how she wanted to be a doctor but decided that that wasn't for her but still managed to find another way to serve and how she talked about getting into the public sector through sheer force of will which is not something we've really heard on this show before often it's oh I just sort of fell into it so that was really really good to hear how about you yeah definitely reminds us that we're not doing this just because it's convenient or because it's a follow-on from a natural career. There are plenty of people out there, which is really heartening, that do want to work in public service. And hopefully part of this podcast and part of One Team Gov is about showing the value of that. She was really inspirational and spoke to that really well. One thing I was really happy to hear about was her experiences in New York. Yeah, that project where she cited getting homeless New Yorkers into houses She described how she collaborated closely with folks who had been doing it for their entire careers. And I think that's a really positive trait that we see repeated with our One Team Gov folks. This idea about collaborating with people who actually know what it's like to serve these people over a long period of time, as opposed to coming in and quote unquote disrupting everything and not really getting those people's buy-in. It reminded me of our interview with Leisha and when she was speaking about all the work she does, obviously, in the homeless sector, especially what Leisha was telling us in that homelessness is a solvable problem. And it seems like that replicated around the world as well in that there are firstly so many people trying really hard to find solutions to homelessness. And then secondly, by taking that service design approach, it is something that we can see quite quick results in. And just by being humble and speaking to the people, as you said, who already work in the space and who have all of the experience and adding that little extra layer of user-centered design can make such a difference. I thought that was great. And also the other part about New York was how fun it was to chat about the city and hanging out there and thinking back to the time that we were there for our conference. Yeah, I was having such great flashbacks to Lesbians Who Tech and the amazing experience that we had meeting all those folks there. And I love that we had actually done the tourist attraction of the beaten track that she recommended of walking over the Williamsburg Bridge. It's good to know that we're really on point despite never having lived in New York. Yeah, definitely. She had some really great emotive human stories as well around public sector work, especially the one about the woman who didn't go to the dentist or didn't use healthcare for a while. That was about the woman who had such a painful mouth, but didn't feel that she could go sign up for Medicaid until she literally couldn't eat. 
And that was such an emotive story. I think that it really speaks to this idea that a lot of these problems we see are not tech problems. We talk a lot about fixing the basics. And I think that's where this civic center design really comes to the fore. It's about getting the right content at the right level to the right people and making them feel that our services are trustworthy. Absolutely. She spoke about human-centered safety net, contrast from focusing on the technology and the enabling factor of the internet to giving people a lifeline and helping them when they're at really, really vulnerable points in their life. Great to see that happening stateside. And I liked how, as part of that, she talked about how human-centered means also centering public servants. It really reminded me of this poster that was up in GDS, which said, civil servants are users too. We talk a lot about the citizen and how they're users, but often people on the front line have been hampered by the technology that we've given them and also by the amount of restriction that we put on them, especially from central government. I really liked how she she talked about centering the people who have been there for a long time and who also need support in order to deliver on these services. The other great thing was to chat about the International Design Conference, which Genevieve was at when we were at One Team Gov Global in London. It was the day after. Really, really interesting to hear how in the conversations with what was dozens of countries from around the world, there were so many similarities. I certainly thought that when you have such different governments and different democracies, that maybe some of the processes would have more differences than they did. I expected the context to inform services that looked quite different to each other. And actually, what she was telling us was that all of these people in the room from places all around the world had a really, really similar journey map across similar spaces. Kind of reminded me of what Tom was saying last week, that government's not that different. It's not that different from the private sector. And often they don't seem that different in terms of the service delivery from each other across the world. And often the thing that we battle with is different stakeholders or departments trying to say that their users are really, really different or their use case is totally unique. And actually, when you have these moments where you're mapping out these journeys, you see just how similar they are and therefore just how reusable a lot of the services that we design could be. Absolutely. I have to say this is a bit of a selfish interview for me because I've been working on platforms and in operations for the last four years. So anytime a big site goes down, I always want to know why and what happened. I remember reading about Nava and those six people who helped save healthcare.gov and basically by proxy saved Obama's entire healthcare agenda and listening to various podcasts. That debacle was apparently one of the only times Obama was seen to be visibly angry. It was really cool to hear about how those six people came into this massive technical debacle and chipped away one bit at a time to make sure, firstly, that the site got back up and then that it got more user-friendly and then continuing to try and improve that experience for users. I was just so excited to hear about that. And I'm just so happy that those people remain doing what they're doing in the US government. It ties back to something we've discussed in previous podcasts, which is that often the biggest changes to governments and to the way that they do technology comes out of a really big crisis like that. And in some ways, you need a big IT disaster to give people the impetus to change and to redesign the way that they do services. And that's definitely the one that stands out for the US. Much like in the UK, there was the big NHS IT disaster a few years before the government digital service was started. 
European Canada, we've got one ongoing at the moment, which is the civil servant pay system is really, really malfunctioning. And that's prompting a lot of people here to spin up different teams and restructure things and get better outcomes. And finally, what I really, really enjoyed about Genevieve's interview was just how much she brought us back to human-centered services. And it's definitely a theme that we've had running through, but I think some of the stories that she told were really, really emotive and reminded us of the value of public service design. And particularly for underserved groups and people who are typically disproportionately affected by poverty and by structural inequity and the work that's being done at NAVA and that she's carrying through in the US is going a long way to help people with things like healthcare and food and energy. That was absolutely brilliant. And I look forward to seeing what they're doing in the future. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.